Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everybody. It's great to see you here this evening. Uh, I'm Bob uh, Vorlicky, and I'll be the moderator for this evening's conversation. And um, a couple of comments that I wanted to make first. That First of all, welcome on behalf of the Institute of New York University, Abu Dhabi, and um, welcoming you to our, our panel, Now Africa, Contemporary African Women Playwrights. Uh, before we get started, there are a few acknowledgments that I wanted to make. Uh, first of all, thank you to the Institute, and especially to Nahid Ahmed for her kind assistance throughout the coordination of this event. Thanks to the faculty and staff of the NYUAD theater program, as well as to the students in my African Women's Playwrights course and Gender in the Future of Normal class, where many of the ideas for tonight's conversation started with students' questions and insights. I really do thank all of you for that. Last but not least, I'd like to thank our distinguished playwrights for carving out time from their incredibly busy schedules to come to Abu Dhabi and to share in this conversation with us. Uh, you've, I've provided, or we've provided for you, a sheet that you should have had when you came in um, that has the uh, biography of um, some of the highlights of our guest panelists. And if so, during the course of the evening or later, if you could familiarize yourself with that, that would be fantastic. We'd really appreciate that. And what I'd like to do is to introduce to you, uh, starting with my left, it's uh, Selma and Asimwe and Dahlia, who are our speakers on the uh, panel uh, conversation tonight. What we're going to do is uh, talk among ourselves for the first wave of the evening, and then we'll open it up for questions from you folks. We've been told that uh, at the time of those questions, what we're going to need is for you to actually use a, a hand mic, so someone will be bringing that to you, because all of this is being recorded, and uh, we look forward to each of you being on... <laughs> on the recording, answering your question afterwards. So fix your hair, squeeze your cheeks, do whatever you need before you get up in front of the camera. Uh, but please make sure that you do have the um, uh, microphone on hand. Um, over the years that I've been teaching um, plays by African writers, it was notable that some men, writers, were being published during the colonial period. This was not the case with women. While some of the earliest women's writings surfaced during the end of the colonial period across the continent, in general, it was not until further into post-colonialism around the 1980s through the present that there has been a rise in African women's playwriting. The writing is evident in readings, minimal productions at festivals, universities, and small budget venues. What is conspicuous? African women's playwrights' works have yet to break through the variety of glass ceilings, walls, bricks, and mortars of fully produced productions and or publication. Fortunately, that's starting to change. Tonight's conversation is an effort to spotlight and showcase the vital theatrical work being written by women across the African continent. If you would join me in welcoming Selma, Asimwe, and Dahlia, I'd appreciate it. Great, thanks very much. Um, well, I thought a, a good first question um, or a way to get us off the ground this evening would be to ask each of you, 
why you've chosen being a playwright, why it is that writing plays is your passion. Anyone can jump in at any point. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll yeah, jump great. in first. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much for that question. And I don't think in my life someone has ever asked me that question in that specific way. So I appreciate that. Writing plays, for me, it is a form of self-expression. Um, and I don't know whether I chose that or whether it chose me. Oh. Uh, and the reason I'm saying that is because my background in terms of telling stories comes from um, storytelling. I, I grew up with my grandmother, and uh, she was a storyteller. And the tradition in our household or in my grandmother's household was that she would tell stories to us grandchildren and then in subsequent nights would retell them in a performance, performative way. Mm. Um, and then eventually when I went to school and I, I, from earlier on I was just passionate about telling stories, um, I started in form of composition writing in English classes. My compositions were always about people talking to each other as opposed to just writing straightforward narratives. Um, and, uh, and then I, I, I think in that way that was, I guess, subconsciously uh, playwriting, choose me, choosing me to express myself that way. And I write plays because... Uh, it is, for me, it is a way to be in conversation with myself, but also mm. with a wider audience. It is a way for me to tell compelling stories, stories that I find interesting, that I find disturbing, uh, that I, I, I want not only for me to digest as a person, but also to be able to invite uh, other people to partake in these stories in form of conversation. So... I guess in a nutshell, that's uh, why playwriting chose me. If I could just ask one question along with that before um, Dahlia and Selma. Who do you see as your audience? That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, who do I see as my no. audience? Um, anyone who would land on a play that I have written. Okay. Um, and honestly, when I'm writing, I'm not consciously thinking about, oh, I want so-and-so to read this play, or I want this play to be read in such a part of the world. Um, so I am writing to tell a story that whoever lands on it will begin to ask themselves the issues that I'm, ri I'm rising or would, uh, if they have never heard of the kinds of themes I'm talking about, would be compelled to research on them, um, would, you know, find something maybe they've never had said being said in a particular play that I'm writing. Dahlia, do you want to... Oh, sure. Try that one, great. <laughs> um, I, I'm a theater maker and I started as a director and for many years I worked with the plays that already existed, but I al always wrestled with them because they were not telling the stories I wanted to share and it would be me editing or adapting and uh, um, eventually I decided to venture into that because I wanted to tell different stories and nobody was telling them. So it was uh, the frustration of not finding the stories to direct that kind of somehow made me write. And it was an accidental thing. I was discussing something with people and I'm working on my computer. It was a new computer that had the game Solitaire, if you're familiar with it. <laughs> Very dangerous for any other productive work. <laughs> and um, I removed them from computers usually. <laughs> and um, I turned off the computer and then this sound is in my head and it's not one of my usual sounds if you understand the notion. <laughs> like, hmm, this 
sound is talking to me in classical Arabic, and it was about the solitaire game. And the best thing I did was turn on the, the computer on and just jot that down, and it was a very clear sound of somebody playing solitaire on the computer and fighting with an audience to turn off their phones and to listen uh-huh. to their story or whatever. And initially, I thought it's an older man, but it was an old woman who is discussing technology, what happened in life, and it just just came out of my fingers. I wrote, I don't know for how long, and I called a friend and I said, you wanted a one-person play? I might have something for you. And I read a few lines, and he said, it's in classical Arabic. I'm going to localize it, like change the language into... And I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, it's my first baby, right. and they're going to change it already. And um, a week later, I realized the story is not over, and I wrote the, the stories of the two daughters. One of them became the solitaire that maybe some of you know or read, and the other part was never produced because of the revolution and other stories. And uh, since then, I realized... I too can do that thing, playwriting, that like the important people do. And I've wrote a number of plays since, mostly for myself to direct. So I, I write so, like as part of my production. And um, it would be very exciting for me to see some of the work here presented by other voices. Right, oh. right. And if, in fairness, because of asking this of a sim way, um, is there... Uh, particularly when you were working with the voice of the older woman. Um, was audience even something that you were, was on your mind at the not time? Th- or? Not that time, because I didn't even realize I was writing a play. I write a lot, and many of them live in the mythical drawer, you understand. Right, things. oh, sure. <laughs> and um, not, not at the beginning, but now as I like, work with, with ideas, I am always cognizant of who's listening and who, who's going to hear this and what am I representing exactly? And like, so it, it's, a, it's an important thing for me, but I write for my Egyptian audience. That's the first thing for me. And I try to write in the language that people speak or close to it, because this is the first audience I want to reach. And um, I usually write in Arabic as well. I, I have a, a recent project that I'm writing in English because it just talks about something very different. And uh-huh. maybe it will be produced in Egypt, but the play is about immigration, so it's around the Mediterranean, they land in London. So that play I am writing in English just because of the subject matter. Right. And who knows where would, would it be produced or published. Got it, got it. Thank you, thank you. And Selma, the passion of playwriting. Um, when I think about it, really, I mean, there's, I was thinking about this earlier today, and I was just remembering how I wrote my very first play. But in retrospect, it comes down to the difference between the visual and the visible. And what do I mean by this? So I started with visual art, which is my first passion. But I really started to struggle with visual art because I really couldn't transcend that idea that visual art is just for an aesthetic purpose. And in my country, in Mozambique and in most of Africa, the history of art is that art has a social function. So art is animated, you know, people participate in art as opposed to simply viewing. But I was really struggling to achieve that participation that I wanted through something that was purely visual. So I started playing with theater a little bit. I, I joined drama in my high school, and, but I was really awkward on stage because I just, I just couldn't see myself there. So I started writing plays because of that, because I wanted to retreat into backstage. And in writing plays, in reading plays, and in watching plays, I really came to find the stage for that visibility that I was looking for. I really came to experience what it's like to have a character or have a story and when this play or this performance is on stage it's really about a conversation with the audience so more and more as I write plays and as I continue to stage and read I I'm really thinking about this you know what does it mean to animate art what does it mean to have art as something that is not a product of something that is done or shown but something that is shared something that is co-owned. Mm. And this is what I hope to continue achieving in playwriting. Are there particular for each of you um, burning issues that, um, and we'll do it from the point of view of now, 
Okay, burning issues that um, you would that that grab your attention. That if if you're not the individual to write about it, you're hoping someone does. And I think if you could think about that from the standpoint of both the local of your own nation, country, as well as uh, pressing issues for the continent. Um, do any come to mind for you? I would say the, yeah. the, the stories of women and the issues of women, unfortunately, um, in spite of all the, the new work and the awareness, there's so much to be shared and told. So many of the stories are not heard at all. Um, the media in general, history in general. Mm. So I feel like more stories of women, different voices, the variety, the minorities, the, 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 a wider range. And if I'm not writing that, I want to watch that. I want to support that happening. I want to create space for it. Yeah. Um, and I think for me that as well, but in addition, one thing that I think I have been thinking a lot about is... Um, the issue of resources, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, and, uh, and powers from elsewhere wanting to partake in those resources. Uh, I mean, so sub-Saharan Africa has had a long colonial past, um, and now there's a, a new kind of relationship or some kind of engagement between many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, especially with most of them um, now discovering that they have oil um, and, and some parts of the world that were not involved in the colonial legacy, mm-hmm. like Asia. Uh, so I am very interested, uh, like if I'm not writing that particular story, I'm very interested to read a, a play that is that interrogates those kinds of questions, uh, like different levels of, of engagements between sub-Saharan Africa, as well as the leaders uh, of many countries uh, in, in sub-Saharan Africa that, uh, that have these kinds of resources that the world needs now. In the past, it was rubber, it was wood. I mean, wood is still needed. Uh, and now oil and coltan in the Congo and other resources and what that means in the way uh, Africa is viewed on the global stage in the way that the leaders in sub-Saharan Africa are uh, kind of auctioning the countries that they lead. Uh, so that is that is a story that I, 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 I... It is being written, but I think I'm very interested in, in seeing more stories around that subject mm-hmm. coming out of the mm-hmm. continent. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I, I think bodies... That's the first thing that I think about. And this is the thing about theater, right? It's, it's bodies on stage. It's a movement. Sometimes there's spoken word and sometimes there isn't spoken word. And in one of the plays that you might have shared with the students that I, that I passed on, um, there is one character, female character, whose role on the play is just to lay on stage. So it's just her body. It doesn't move. It just stays there throughout all the scenes. And what I want to see more in theater is bodies like those rising up and adding movement. Because I feel that a lot of stories about women and some stories written by women about women, these women are still somehow in a state of sleep. Our bodies are still asleep, you know, our bodies are still learning to wake up and learning to move. Because as Asimwe said, our history of oppression, our history of colonialism is also violence that was inflicted on the body. You know, we were physically stopped from performing certain actions. So it's really important for me that theater is an animated art to see the bodies of women rising up and moving. So I I really want to see more of that on stage. How is, when you think of, of um, uh, your own, for each of you, the body of work that you have produced, um, could each of you talk a little bit so that the audience, while well, they have names of 
texts and, excuse me, plays that you've written and ventured into other media and uh, activism. Um, could each of you maybe just take a moment to, dis- to talk a little bit about the journey that your work has taken, and um, which then also positions a um, little bit of where you are right now and the journey that that work has brought you to, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, <laughs> okay. So my plays have, have had a trajectory of their own. Um, and when I started writing, so my very first play that I staged was in high school. So, but when I went on to university, I was studying political science. And I was really trying to still keep in touch with theater. And it helped that I was studying that in South Africa. And South Africa, especially during apartheid and post-apartheid South Africa, a lot of the social change that was brought up by the people was through theater. Again, because theater was the perfect opposition of oppression. You know, in South Africa, again, their bodies couldn't go to certain places. And in theater, those bodies had all the freedom to subvert that. So it was a really, I found a really interesting relationship with what I studied in the lecture hall with the protests that were happening outside and with the opportunity to bring those together onto the stage for a conversation. So my early plays are, are very detailed and very specific to certain issues. I have one play that is, is very about constitutionalism. It's about the issue of homelessness in South Africa and the contradiction that, you know, South African constitution is known to be one of the best in the world that provides care and provides rights uh, to even immigrants. However, it fails to address the basic need for shelter. And of course, South Africans cannot revoke that because many, most of the population in South Africa cannot even access the constitution, the physical paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right now, the, the way in which I am going is that I really want to deal with smaller issues that have a bigger impact. So in my oh. country, Mozambique, the history of performance has been such that communities come up with a way to share their issues with those who are not listening. And one of the techniques that I'm really interested in is forum theater. Because this technique doesn't start with me as an artist saying what I want to say, but I use my art as a facilitation to get what the community is facing and to bring social change for themselves. So this is, this is the direction that I'm going now. More and more, I want to use theater not as an end product, not as a performance. I want to use it as a tool of community engagement. Um, my earlier plays, uh, most of them were about siblings fighting, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I guess <laughs> that was informed by my own setting. <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of like, so I think this, what I'm going to say, uh, I need to give a little bit of a background as far as my education is concerned. So my first degree was in theater, but I was specializing in acting. Um, And much as I enjoyed being on stage, I I felt there was something else that in terms, in addition to performing before an audience, something else that I felt my body was telling me to do besides performing, and that was to actually write stories. Um, And the university where I was at, at Makerere University in Kampala, wasn't offering uh, playwriting as a course. So I ended up uh, traveling outside of my home country for further studies uh, in playwriting. And I think the movement, the physical movement from my homeland for the first time in my life to go and study elsewhere and experience a different culture uh, allowed me um, an opportunity to see my home differently from, as an outsider, from a different angle. 
And uh, that, in relation to where I was living and where I was studying from, made me to begin to question certain things uh, about where I was and the relationship between, I was studying in the United States, so the relationship between the country, in the United States as a country and the country where I was born and raised. Uh, I started asking myself questions of social relationships, uh, political relationships, the economic relationships. I started asking myself the the questions of the economic divide, Uh, the questions of corruption in my own country started coming up, and questions of foreign aid, and what does that mean? Is it really aid? So then that set me on a whole new level of the kind of stories that I started to be interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in addition to that, I also started to think about the questions of moving from one place to another. As a black woman, what does that mean? Um, what are the barriers for me as a black woman who wants to achieve a certain something? And those barriers are put in my in in my journey, and what do I need to do to be able to overcome those kinds of barriers? Uh, And then that also, I begin to start asking myself questions of immigration and migration. Um, And I I don't want to say that my trajectory as a playwright is changing because I think I'm still interested in, in interrogating those questions of this world here and this world here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet, you know, people from both worlds have moved, but still, for me, for example, to want to travel anywhere, mm-hmm. there are so many things I have to think about. I have to, it's, I cannot just get up, pack up my bags and go anywhere like that. I know that there are barriers in my place as someone from Sub-Saharan Africa, as someone who is black African, as a woman. Uh, And all those things are still informing my uh, playwriting trajectory. I think my path is closely connected to change, protest, revolution in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been directing theater for a very long time, but my writing all happened in the last decade or um, and the the play that has kind of had some fame traveled around the world solitaire connects the story of 9/11 to the Egyptian revolution so it's this decade of uh, of change around the world since the beginning of the 21st century and um, as the revolution took different turns and the anti-revolution took its own turn Many of the stories I was able to tell earlier, I can't tell anymore. Mm-hmm. Even the earlier stories that were performed are now subject to uh, challenging situations, including censorship. And I mentioned to you yesterday, um, I was commissioned to create a play, and um, I wrote exactly what I wanted to do, and they accepted the proposal. Once they read the play, this is the funders, they said, oh, the dimension of the revolution on page 9, 10, and 12. It's like, yes, there is. That's exactly what I propose to do. <laughs> I am writing a play about a group of artists rehearsing uh, a production I would love to do. I'm calling it Opera Tahrir, the, like on, on the lines of like Le Miserable or like that kind of a story. And I can't find the time or the funding to do this big project. So this is just a snippet of it where actors are rehearsing that and they say, but it mentions the revolution. And I was like, yes, Opera Tahrir. It's about the revolution. (laughs) So even the funders were scared of the word revolution. And the person who was talking to me was actually a year and a half prior with me in Tahrir Square in 2012 in big protests and going into like, the dangerous area, and I'm telling him, no, you have to go back, you have a family. <laughs> like, so this is not somebody who was like, in a different camp or whatever, but what he was willing to support a year before, he wasn't able or capable of supporting anymore. So it's issues of censorship that we have to, to nego- negotiate on a constant mm. basis. And 
Um, actually, in Egypt, there is an office of the censors, and it's in downtown, and you go and take your text personally. I try to send my assistants, oh. like, no, you have to come personally. Huh. <laughs> That's very, very painful. That was not the case in 2011 or 2012. I mean, I passed solitaire, and I even went to the government saying, I'm invited to a festival. You should send me, and they would. Nobody asked about the censor's stamp. Now there's more than one level of that, and they would mm. go word for word, oh, this word, you have to remove this word because you're affecting decency in society. It's like, really? Me? <laughs> this word? Don't you see what's going around? But anyways, so I'm not going to say the word because I'm affecting decency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so in, in that tradition, I, or, um, I'm, I'm writing the things that I can write mm. and get away with it, and I'm writing mm. the other things because I really want to write the other things. Mm. But they stay in the mythical drawer, <laughs> yeah. so uh, so that I don't affect the decency of people or change their mind politically or whatever. But um, it it's, it was it's my negotiation, my trajectory of of dealing with self censorship, mm. because that for oh. me is the most dangerous. And that I'm I'm not a young artist anymore, and I'm like I had my time to. Fight these voices, and if you're familiar with the Augusto Boal, like yeah. cup in the head, <laughs> this the little voice here and the other voice there, and what would they say? And what if my mom come to see this work, or <laughs> what if my uncles read this book? So right now I'm writing, <clears throat> writing it all, but I'm deciding who to share what with. And mm. theater is public, so I'm making these choices advisedly, mm -hmm. uh, especially with the current political situation where I live right now. Right. So uh, it's just that. That, that space, where like, I, what am I representing? What is my voice? What would my students say? Or <laughs> all of these other voices. And the, I'm, I'm winning that war. I'm writing it all. Excellent. But the sharing part yeah. is the, mm -hmm. the other negotiation. And I just, just an anecdote for a moment. Would you share with the audience the fact of, of your other life, along with playwriting? <laughs> Which one? Oh, excuse me. How foolish of me. Um, the agrarian life. If yeah, you so could just say, because this is I, wonderful. I moved to Cairo in, uh, in 2009 after living in New York for a while, and I decided to reclaim a piece of desert in, in the Western Sahara. So I am a farmer. <laughs> and I, and I pick, and pick a lot of olives. <laughs> and um, somehow... It, it features in my work in a way, without me noticing. I was speaking to a group of students at Ain Shams University, and some of them read my play in a creative writing course. And I said, I advise you, if you want to do this, be a gardener, not a farmer. Like, do something small. And one of the students said, no, but it was important that you're a farmer because of that blah, blah, blah in that play and that scene and that scene. So they're finding it important for my writing. My back is not agreeing. Excellent, excellent. So all of us who are budding writers should yeah. start to navigate and negotiate whether or not we're going to have farming in our lives in the, in the future. Um, I, I wanted to ask you um, how each of you... Uh, in locating your home of origin within the continent and um, sub-Saharan countries in relation to Northern Africa. And uh, because there is a, a great deal of conversation that goes on about uh, the various varying histories, what's shared in terms of geography as a continent. Um, if you could each uh, talk a little bit about um, how, how you think of the, the continent of Africa and um, your own location in relationship to your country's other geographically. How does the continent speak? Should it speak? Um, if it does, in what voices yeah. does it speak? I, I'll start because it's a shorter answer. Most Egyptians don't think they're Africans, which is a fascinating thing. I mean, they don't look at the map. <laughs> so they would be talking about Africa or Africans are. It's like us. 
<laughs> that somehow there is this <laughs> divide in, the, in their knowledge, and I'm I'm aware and I'm very proud of that shared like history, trying to understand more, trying to learn more. There's a mm. lot that I don't know. I'm more familiar with many European stories than many African stories because of how knowledge is shared and the focus. So it, it's, it's, it's really sad that, that this is the situation and this is for the, most, the, for the majority, including intellectuals, not, yeah. not just like, uh -huh. like people who are not well-read. So it's, it's, um, it's do, you, a, do you see that changing at all? And I'm, again, embedded in that, it's not saying it should or shouldn't. In, in, I, I really in the little wanted... margin of freedom we had immediately after the first revolution waves, there were delegates from the people visiting other African countries. And that, oh. I felt, was an amazing move. And then that margin of freedom kind of closed. closed. So it's not happening right now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a shame. Like to, to travel to anywhere in Africa, sometimes you have to go to Dubai <laughs> to find a connection. Uh -huh. My first trip to Morocco with my first play, we went to France to go to, because mm -hmm. there is no direct flight. Like there's so many of these frustrating stories. To go to Senegal, I, I spent 16 hour layovers. Wow. Like right. even just to go straight south, uh -huh. I, like so it just makes perfect sense. Just have a line, like a, a train line from South Africa to, to Cairo or to Alexandria. Yeah. <laughs> it's possible. It's easy. <laughs> it's easier than going to another continent yeah. right. to come to that. Yeah. Right. Or even sometimes two continents. There's yeah. a time I was, I was traveling from Uganda to Morocco. I first went to Spain, Qatar, yeah. Morocco. Yeah, and uh, so that in itself, just like traveling intra Africa itself, is so difficult and so expensive. As it is, like when I'm traveling, for example, to the UK, so easy, cheap. But traveling from, say, I've never been to any country in Western Africa, for example, oh. just because the movement is so complicated. Yeah. Uh, but of course, that's not an excuse. But I mean, I'm, 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 I guess what I'm trying to say is that even within sub-Saharan Africa itself, the divides are so major. So yeah. there's a sub-Saharan Africa that speaks French that probably is not as knowledgeable about the eastern and southern parts of Africa mm -hmm. that uh, British, were well, former British colonies. So I, I, I think there's a generation, and I guess right after independence, after most of the sub-Saharan African countries got their independence, there was uh, an urge, a need, uh, an interest to connect the continent from Cairo to Cape Town. But I think as these countries started grappling with what it meant to be independent, and I'm putting that in quotation, right. you know, right. for a reason, what it meant to be independent, as, as coups started happening, as destabilization of these countries just continued up to this day. So the question, I think, the question of, like, for example, United States of Africa is, it, it keeps becoming more and more of an illusion, as, as opposed to a reality. Mm. I know that different parts of the continent are trying to like, organize themselves in these regional bodies, maybe with a name yeah. of eventually becoming like a united continent, but still there are so many challenges, even language itself, you know. Uh, um, yeah, so many challenges for, yeah. the, for the continent to get together. And that is not to say that it's not possible. I think it is possible. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that the focus is so different. Even within our countries, themselves are very unique, but also the way they were clustered, that in itself, clustered as in... in so, for example, in Uganda, we have over 40 languages spoken, that tiny country. And so people, first and foremost, view themselves as this ethnic group, this tribe, as opposed to, you know, like uh, referring to themselves as Ugandans or Africans first. Mm -hmm. True, true. Yeah. I think I'd like to just write off that. I think two things that are really important that have also been in my mind. One is language and the second is migration. Um, 
you spoke about the different languages that we speak just in sub-Saharan Africa. So last week, I was in Congo Brazzaville for two weeks on an African Union training. And the African Union has four official languages. So English, French, Arabic, and Portuguese. My country, Mozambique, we speak Portuguese. So in this training, I was really and excited. Swahili wasn't uh, part of Swahili, a little bit in the north of the country, close to Tanzania. A little bit. But Swahili, for example, is not an official language of the African Union, although it is the most widely spoken uh, language in, in Africa. The, right, right. So I was in this training, and I was, first of all, I was really excited because, you know, I was going to get to be with all these Africans. It's what Dahlia mentioned, right? Every single <laughs> African event in Africa is actually sub-Saharan African delegates. Mm -hmm. So myself, as a sub-Saharan Africa, no, almost never get the chance to actually interact physically with Northern Africans. So the, the thing that I was most excited about going to Congo Brazzaville is that I was going to meet someone from Algeria, someone from Tunisia, someone from Morocco. I get there and basically the whole conference is in French. Luckily I can pick up a little bit of French because I speak Portuguese, but my reflection was, if you don't speak French in Africa, then you are basically lost. And it's a very sad realization to know that this is a language that is very elevated in our continent. And like most languages that are official languages of our countries, these are colonial legacies. The second thing that I wanted to touch on is migration. I was telling Bob how amazing it is and, and how actually revolutionary it is that you have African artists sitting in front of you in Abu Dhabi. Because the history of studying Africa or studying about Africa is that you learn about this continent from books and ethnographies and, you know, journals from missionaries. And, and it's great when you get to actually go to Africa, but again, we are replicating a journey here that is not a well-intentioned journey. You are going to Africa to pick up and learn and impose an other, you know, and study the other. And the fact that this time, you know, we were flown in from the continent to come and address you ourselves. So we are speaking about our art ourselves, no middle people. Um, it is a revolutionary way of bringing African knowledge to the classroom. And more so, we are undoing the history of these migration routes. You know, this time we are the ones, you know, I was reflecting, I'm the one coming from Mozambique to Johannesburg, across East Africa, across the Red Sea to come to the Middle East. I am undoing the history of this route. Mm. And thank you. <laughs> however, however, <laughs> that's amazing. However, but, but, <laughs> For us to reflect, mm. it is much easier for me to interact with other Africans outside of Africa than yep. in Africa. So that is the sad reality that Africa today, it is still very hard. I have no idea what the reason is, but our own roots that before were very solid, we have been trading with one another. In fact, the African Union, you know, African liberation, all of that was orchestrated from Tanzania and from Morocco. Mm. Today, for some reason, that doesn't happen anymore. Oh. Um, if it, just before opening it up for questions from you folks, I, I do have uh, one last one. And it is something that we've been talking about. We've been having a great time, first of all, <laughs> the, the four of us. And in a very short amount of time, but yeah. we've been having a wonderful time together. And um, But last week on campus, we had a, a just an amazing event on transnational feminism. And um, I, it both feels appropriate and uh, quite necessary um, to, to just ask of, of each of you um, your own thoughts about, about local, um, well, your relationship to feminism, um, how transnational feminism has or has not impacted. Um, we, we touched on it a little bit uh, earlier in a conversation, but I, it feels like the right moment to kind of capture just a little bit about that, if you wouldn't mind. 
Go ahead. Uh, we all turned her down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So when I think of feminism, um, I was sharing with them earlier. I think of my family first and foremost. Um, I feel very fortunate that I grew up with a mother next to me, as well as my grandmother and my great-grandmother. So I am having the opportunity to observe different women existing in different ways because they all come from different contexts. And already that, that life experience humbles me a lot because being from this generation and seeing this wave of feminism, um, it's very nice and it's very good for me, but it's not the same language that my grandmother, for example, speaks. And often when I'm in, in family situations and I have aunts and, and all of these different conflicts that are happening at home and different ways of advising women at home, you know, I want to have my say, I want to advocate and, and reaffirm myself. Often I've had to take a step back and just listen. And I've just tried to supplement this life experience with reading a lot. Um, I've been reading a lot about what African feminism is like. Um, I've even been reading about authors, you know, there's Oyeronke Oyewume from Nigeria. Um, she writes a fantastic book called The Invention of Woman. And her point is that in Yoruba semantics, there isn't a word, a descriptive word to identify one's gender identity. From that point of departure, she says that if people are not identifying themselves by their gender or are not using gender as a factor that influences how they live life, then we also need to question the arrival of feminism in Africa. Her point is that feminism, not as, not as the way of existing, but as the way of thinking, is something that also, you know, arrived on a boat, as South Africans would say. <laughs> and with that, then, it really changes how I communicate this idea, not only in my arts, but just in my own way of existing. It means that not everyone is going to be a feminist the same way that feminists are in the United States. Not everyone is going to be a feminist in the United States as they are in the Middle East. So it also means that before we, we speak, we need to listen. And we need to reassess ourselves as women and as a society, how different women are existing. Yeah. Dahlia, anything with that? I identify as a feminist and I, um, as I told you earlier, I um, suggest to everybody and that they are feminist if they are, they are a believer in equality. Any of you who does not believe in equality between people, please raise your hands. And if they don't, <laughs> then they're all feminist. And then that, that gets me in trouble with some audiences sometimes. <laughs> and, I, and I feel it's, it's important to... Uh, to acknowledge that not just as women, but as society, because so many people are well-intentioned and well-read, but somehow, as soon as they hear the F word, right. <laughs> yeah. they shy from it. And unfortunately, many of the young women, I was interviewing people to help in a project recently, and this woman who's studying gender issues, and she's like, I'm a gender person, I'm not a feminist. As if it's uh, an accusation. Like she was like saying it like with distancing it herself. And I was like, why aren't you a feminist? You're reading all the right things. <laughs> You're like, What's wrong? Mm. But it's an interview, so I'm not supposed to ask these questions. <laughs> and, um, and, and I feel that there's like something, uh, there's a gap between the theoretical knowledge and what happens in, 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 in like daily existence and the... Mm. With, with the Me Too movement, I assumed something major is going to happen, mm. but nothing really, really happened, like, like apart from talking about it. And uh, unfortunately, where I come from, the Me Too movement is, there's a, mm. it's hurting the women more, because as soon as a woman makes it public, society accuses her. And unfortunately, a couple of women were arrested by the government for sharing something on Facebook because they are uh, ruining the reputation of the country. Mm. So not only that they are like society, like they, they got jail sentences. So I feel there's a lot to be, to be done in that world. And at least for me, I, thinking like adopting the, at least the, the idea of, the, yes, I am a feminist and these are the things I stand for. I'm not negotiating, and I'm really appreciating the range of um, 
ideas that you offered, but I feel I, I'm not really keen on discussing who's a feminist and how. Uh, there are issues that we need to deal with, put on the label, remove the label, let's discuss this and really do something about it as a society, all of us, men and women, wherever we are. Unfortunately, the issues are all over the world. It's not one country or one continent. I guess for me, my take is kind of to something that uh, Selma was saying, um, that like when I think about, for example, the languages that I speak, or most of the Bantu languages, which are languages that are spoken in the sub-Saharan Africa, Eastern Africa, Western Africa, and Southern Africa, uh, like, for example, there are no pronouns, pronouns, pardon me, uh, and also, like, words that define specific genders don't exist in those languages. And so, f- for me, thinking about feminism, if, for example, I were to try and translate that word to my mother, who doesn't speak English, what would I say? But I know that there are choices that she has made in her life that are very, very feminist. <laughs> very feminist. So, I guess, again, for me, it's... How do people exist in a way that they um, they preach and practice equality, that they shun inequality, and that, in my understanding, I would label them feminism, although they may not understand the word or even ever think of using it. So I guess that that is my kind of thought and school of thought in terms of uh, feminism. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.